Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. You do know that we come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We are uh, podcasting these programs on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations that uh, you folks are reposting us to. Thank you so much. And as of this broadcast, we, I, I, again, I really wish... I need to talk to somebody at SoundCloud to find out what these numbers really, really mean. But in three years and five, six, seven months, we're at 33,000 listens. Thank you. Thank you. That's, I guess that's phenomenal. In over three years, uh, 10,000 a year, I guess that's pretty darn good. Thank you for listening and enjoying these programs. And on YouTube, we're now on YouTube as well for the videos so you can watch these programs. I have, uh, the last count, it was 19 subscribers. I'm a, up to a whopping 21. I'm so excited. It's very good. And if you can subscribe, so much the better to to uh, crank that number up. But see, I'm not really into likes and and those kinds of things and follows per se, although I appreciate it and I hope you will, uh, I just want to get the information out. If you like it and if you follow, that's just a bonus because really it's the information that we want to share with you here on this program. So thank you for doing that. If you also find these programs resonate with you, you enjoy what we're doing here, please support us if you can financially. We have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And also, and I say this on every program with all of this information, please spend time going within during this decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. We hope that you will do that and uh, join us in that quest to learn more about self so that in turn we then learn more about each other. That's kind of the way it works. And today is no exception. We are going to learn about someone who is sharing with us an idea, a concept, a philosophy, if you will, that might actually be slightly controversial uh, because it, um, it says that there is a point in time, and maybe it's under contract, when we kind of get tired of what we're doing and we want out. I don't know what the reasons are. Well, maybe we'll find out here on the program today. We're going to be talking about walk-ins. And if you're not familiar with what they are, then stay tuned. We're going to learn about the cosmology of the soul with Sheila Seppi. And Sheila, I want to thank you so much for being on the program today. Where are we, uh, where are you, we zooming in to you today? I'm located in Leadville, Colorado. We're 10,200 feet up, looking at majestic mountains out my kitchen window. Um, we have Mount Elbert and Mount Massive, which are Colorado's two tallest peaks and the tallest peaks in the contiguous U.S. So it's absolutely gorgeous here. Well, very nice. And I know that uh, you do not want to have an ocean view at this point. <laughs> no, no that, would be, that, would, that would be a little freaky. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you that uh, my best friend and I traveled in 1981 to Kansas and um, we crossed the Continental Divide. Of course, you have to uh, as we went across uh, Mexico, New Mexico and Texas and so forth. And uh, when we crossed, we saw the sign. 
Uh, I made a big deal about it. And, of course, from that point on, on that entire trip, I kept telling everybody, this is my first time across the Continental Divide. Like, so? (laughs) But uh, it is a big deal when you are in the pioneer days and you are going west and you're trying to eke out a living, find a place to homestead and put down roots and so on and so forth. And some folks made it and some folks didn't. And uh, some folks uh, actually came across during the gold rush. There's a, there's that great line. There's a great line from a Dan Fogelberg song about the gold rush of uh, 49 are uh, not 49 60s, 1860s, uh, where some people, they, you know, they froze with the reins still in their hands. Uh, and that's how bad it got. But uh, where you are right now, I'm sure that it's nice and cool uh, and beautiful. What we want to talk about today, now that we have the weather report out of the way, <laughs> is walk-ins. Uh, but before we do that, tell us about yourself in terms of your your connection to this concept. It's referred to as the cosmology of the soul when speaking about this whole aspect of the contract and reincarnation and all of the other words that, and phrases that go along with that. Okay. Well, I want to give you just a little bit of a backstory because throughout my whole life, I was plagued with a variety of illnesses and had been diagnosed with everything from bone cancer, brain tumors, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. I used to walk with a cane. I had erythema nodosum. Everything that could go wrong, I felt like in my body was going wrong. And I relied solely on Western medicine. And at that time, I had no idea what cosmology of the soul was. I'd never heard of a walk-in. And to be quite honest, I didn't believe in it. I did not believe in reincarnation. I did not believe that um, we came back time and time again. I didn't believe in karma. I had a very narrow box that I operated from, and I was quite comfortable there. But one night in September of 99, I went to bed, this very sick person, and I woke up with what felt like someone reaching down, grabbing me by the hair of the head, pulling me bolt right up in bed. And it was as if lightning ran through my body. And then I was in white space. Now, I don't know how long I was in this white space, but as I started coming back to myself, I, my peripheral vision came in first and then my frontal vision. And when that happened, everything was the same as I looked around the room, but everything was different. As I walked by a mirror and I caught my reflection, I was, I mean, I was in awe because it was as if there were a stranger staring back at me. Now, to be honest, because I had been so sick, I had a dysfunctional marriage. I was a mom with three kids. I had a high profile, high busy job. I thought the stress had actually gotten to me and maybe I was having a psychotic break because at that time I had zero vocabulary, zero foundation to understand what in fact had truly happened to me because all of a sudden things that I didn't believe in, I remembered. I remembered 
past lives. I remembered healing techniques. I remembered being a Native American shaman and performing healing rituals and ceremonies. I all of a sudden was clairvoyant and clairaudient and clairsentient. I didn't believe in those things. So obviously, I thought I was going bonkers, to be honest. And I tried to talk to a few people about this. But the more I talked, the more they started looking at me out of the corner of the eye. And I felt like that they were actually verifying the fact that maybe I had lost it. And so I started being quiet. But within three months, everything about me had changed. First off, all of my illnesses went away. Doctors had absolutely no explanation. I no longer needed a cane to walk. I could get down in the floor and play with my kids. I had an abundance of energy. I changed my diet. I changed the way that um, I dressed. All of my lifestyle changed, including the foods that I ate, the people I surrounded myself with. I found that I no longer had anything in common with and felt really like we were disassociated from each other. When I came in, the only thing that I really had a strong connection to were my children, my parents, and my sister, and that was it. But within three months, I had actually made the decision and left that marriage, which I don't think prior to this event occurring to me, I had the strength to do. But within those three months, everything about me, as I said, started to change, including my self-esteem, my self-awareness. I began to expand. I would be I would remember more and more things about the soul, like what it was like for the spirit to slip out and to go back on the other side. I remembered what it was like being in spirit form. I remembered kind of a little bit of a structure of the universe that was shared with me. And again, I held these things very close. Within another three months after I had left the marriage, then I found my first spiritual teacher by a fluke because if you'll remember, I just said, I thought maybe I was going crazy. So I began seeking out a counselor and I found a spiritual counselor. My background was in psychology, so that felt very safe, spiritual. I came from a religious background, so the word spiritual felt very safe to me. But after working with her just a couple times, she is the one that introduced this um, concept of being a walk-in. Now, I'd never heard of a walk-in prior to that. And what I was explained is that a walk-in is a soul that agrees to switch places with another soul that inhabits the body. And most of the time, this isn't just a fluke. Someone just can't say, oh, I'm sick of this life. It's crazy. Woe is me. I want out of here. It has to be something that is a prearranged agreement when you're still in spirit form. So the soul that inhabited this body originally, the natal soul, had a contract to be in this particular body for 38 years, and then it would leave and go about whatever the rest of its mission was. And then I would come in. And when I came in, it, it my world was rocked. One of, the all, one of the other things that happened is I didn't have a lot of memories about growing up, my childhood, uh, family and friends that I supposedly was close with. And in fact, my parents only found out about me, well, my dad found out 
right before I published the book because I didn't want him to hear about it and freak out. But my mom actually sat me down on the couch and told me she thought I had the beginning stages of Alzheimer's because of my total lack of uh, recollection. And so I had to explain to her about being a walk-in soul. Then um, life went on and I have been in this body now. It'll be 22 years this fall. And in the fall of 2020, well, actually in 19, my guides told me that I really needed to write this book and to write my story down. Now, the year that January, I had been asked to come and speak with an organization about being a walk-in and to put things into a PowerPoint presentation. I had never even, I really hadn't been sharing my story that much. And honestly, I didn't even know where to begin. But the more that I wrote, the more that I put down, the more I thought about it, the more and more memories would come to me. So that started in January. And by that fall, then I um, had already written a basic outline. I found an editor. Um, my friend Barbara Lamb had encouraged me to go ahead and to begin writing. And then another friend, Andrea Perrin, had looked over the draft and said, oh, my God, you've got to turn this into a book. You've got to tell your story because it is First off, it's unbelievable. But second of all, people need to hear this. And the beautiful thing about the book is I didn't write this to try to be like a New York best time seller. I wrote this book to help other people who may be experiencing what I went through to let them know that they're not crazy and that there are other people out there who have had these experiences. And one of the other things I found out in writing the book is I just assumed, well, first off, I was looking for a community of walk-ins because I knew a couldn't be the only one out there. And I knew Shirley MacLaine had written a book about it, but I, I bought the book, but I never read it. As a matter of fact, I didn't read anything about walk-ins until my book was in the hands of my editor. And then he encouraged me to start writing and to see what other people had said. But I guess I wanted to keep uh, my information pure to me, what I remembered and not being influenced by anyone else. So as I started seeking out other walk-ins to interview, I thought, you know, my story in and of itself is just my story. I need other people to say, hey, I've had this experience too. But what I found, and I interviewed 15 other individuals in the research I did, I found that there were tons of other types of soul experiences, not just the classic walk-in, which is what's what I was, mm -hmm. one soul out, another soul in, the soul exchange. There's what's called the soul infusion. And that is when a person, the majority of their natal soul leaves, but then a newer, higher vibrating aspect comes into the body. Then there's what's called a soul braid, where you have two independent souls inhabiting the body at the same time. Then there's what's called a soul overlay, which if this is the natal soul, the new soul comes in kind of like a neoprene suit. It fits around the soul and serves as a, bit, a battery charger. And either that natal soul will heal and be ready to do whatever it needs to do, or it will leave, 
or those two souls will merge and become one. Hmm. Then there's what's called soul jumpers that kind of come in and out for very short periods of time to people's bodies to have a certain experience or to help them with a project or to help them through a grieving process or something like that. And then there's what's called soul layering. Because we are all multidimensional beings, when we incarnate, there's only a small soul aspect that actually can enter into the physical body. Otherwise, it would blow the entire neurology of the body. But when you have soul layering, you have, it's kind of like the little flaky biscuits. You know, you have more than one aspect that comes in at a time. And throughout life, one soul aspect will emerge and then it will recede. And then another aspect will emerge and then it recedes. So you kind of have like this little dance of the souls. And when I discovered this, to be honest, I was kind of blown away because I just assumed all walk-ins had the exact same experience that I had. I also found that there were a lot of walk-ins who remembered the exact point that they decided on the other side that they would come in. They remembered if they were on a planet, some remembered getting into a ship and coming and hovering above the body and entering that way. Some people remembered being on a planet and the next thing they knew, they woke up in a human form. Some people remembered even being, they remembered everything about every incarnation that they had ever had. Well, that blew my mind too. And I began to sit with that and it was like, okay, then the essence of the soul is so much larger than even I had conceived of. My guides had been helping me this whole time to write the book. And they had also come to me after I had moved. I re After I left the one marriage, then I was um, on my own for about four or five years. Then I remarried, moved to Colorado. And it was during that time frame that my guides began to work with me. Okay, so let's see. I in 1999, I came in. Actually, I remarried in 04. And then it was in 06 that we moved to Colorado. And my guides were working with me describing the essence of the soul because I'm like, okay, look, I'm a walk in. So what does that mean? Where did my other aspect go? Did I push them out? Did they just what happened? Can we just say, hey, I want to be a soul exchange and that happens? And as if they explained to me, absolutely not. This is an agreement that occurs on the other side. Or like in my case, it was an emergency situation where the soul cried out to be re to be released. And I was in my collective essence and we heard that cry and it was decided that this would be the aspect that would incarnate into the body at that time. And they, I said, okay, so with all of that information, what does that mean about the soul? Does, you know, does each person, do we retain our individuality? What happens? And it's like, yes, in a way we do because this lifetime, the Richard aspect will go back into the collective, the oversoul. But what they told me it was called was the Shantias Khan. And it goes back into the Shantias Khan. And when it's time to incarnate again, then it's almost like 
the soul can go around to all of the attributes that it has, all the talents, all the gifts, all of the information that it's retained from lifetime after lifetime, kind of shop and say, hmm, this lifetime I need to play the piano, I need to know how to sew, I need this, I need that. And it gathers all of that information that's going to be needed for a particular lifetime, but only that small aspect incarnates. Now, when it incarnates, what stays attached to the Shantiyas Khan as it begins to come down is called the higher self. And as that higher self gets closer and closer and denser and denser before it enters into the physical body, it's called spirit because the spirit kind of moves to and moves through the body. It kind of enlivens the body. It works out in our etheric field. But the aspect that attaches to the body is called the soul. And that's the personality of this lifetime. And so as it was explained to me, the soul that originally was in this body was complete with its mission. It had completed everything that it needed to in this lifetime, but it still had a few things that were undone. And so when I came in, I agreed to work on the things that were undone before I began to work on the reasons that I had actually incarnated into the body to begin with. So that is a long answer <laughs> to a very short little question. <laughs> well, Sheila Seppi is my guest. Walk-ins, the cosmology of the soul is our subject here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And uh, it raises a whole bunch of questions in my mind first one comes to mind has to do with many of the I'll call them uh, in a, and I'm using this very generically all of the mental health issues that people have suffered down through literally the centuries um, and and I'm not even going to start to list them because you probably know exactly where I'm going with this in especially in terms of those people who, have experienced the walk-in phenomenon, don't know what it is, and the mind, because that's where the challenge of the struggle is, the mind doesn't know what to do with this, and they, as you phrased it, they think they're going crazy. Yes. And we put them in institutions, they wind, out, uh, wind up out on the streets, etc., etc., etc. So is that, a, is that a fair assessment that we have mis- interpreted what has happened to the majority. I'm not saying that there aren't psychological and mental health pro issues, uh -huh. maybe out of balance chemistry, et cetera, et cetera, or damage. But would it be fair to say that the majority are experiencing that walk-in phenomenon? I mean, is there, I, and I, I don't know if there have been any studies to, to try to track this at all, uh, what are your thoughts on this? What is your awareness? What have you been shown in this regard? Because my background was psychology, I ask that very same question of my guides and a lot of the people that I spoke with. One of the ladies that's actually interviewed in my book is from Harvard, and um, she is a soul layering aspect. Now, the difference between a soul layering aspect and multiple personalities is multiple personalities is a mental health issue okay. or a mental health concern. But 
what happens is those personalities are creative as a way to cope with things that are occurring to this person in their lifetime. But when you have a soul layering, that is the fullness of various aspects of the soul coming in to have experiences. Now, the difference is soul layering has nothing to do with coping mechanisms. It's all about the experience. And people who are walk-ins are... um, Even if they don't know that they're a walk-in, they typically would not be classed as mentally ill. So people who are in mental institutions suffering from psychosis or disassociative personality disorders, those really are true disorders. For me, because I had no foundation. And as I said, I had no vocabulary. I had no background in walk-ins or even the metaphysical arena at that time. The only thing I knew was to fall back on the mental health aspects of it. So I thought I was going crazy, yet I didn't exhibit all of those signs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there could be people who are walk-ins that are feeling as if they're crazy, that if they explain things to their families or partners may have been referred to mental health. But I don't know that I would go as far as to say a majority of the people um, are in that situation because the people that I have spoken with that are true walk-ins, they have a cognizance about them. They have this knowing that they are here. They are here for a mission and they are here to help support humanity. I have come in contact with a lot of people who have thought that they were walk-ins who actually had had a kundalini awakening or who had had a beautiful spiritual awakening. Now the kundalini awakening and a spiritual awakening, although they have a lot of the same um, signs as a walk-in, those would come about through dedication and personal work. Whereas a walk-in situation, it happens just like that. Mm. So someone who has had a spiritual awakening would not necessarily be classified as having a mental illness. And I think the same could be said for people who are walk-ins. They don't have mental illnesses, but they've had something to happen to them that they just can't explain. So that would sort of be the other side of it, that I think I'm a walk-in, and then it turns out, no, you're you're not, and that's okay, too. Don't, you know. <laughs> you know? These are all soul experiences. Exactly. You know, walk-ins exactly. are just one type mm-hmm. of a soul experience. Yeah. Even though, like with soul exchange, or the I'm a soul exchange, that's called a walk-in, it's a soul experience. Mm-hmm. A soul braid mm-hmm. is a soul experience. A kundalini awakening is a soul experience. Right. It's one of the things that's interesting. I was having a conversation just the other day with someone, and um, they were talking about their past experiences and placing judgment on them. Oh, uh, that was so embarrassing, or uh, I, I was, I was, I'm so bad. You know, I mean, they were saying it chuckling, but still sort of, uh, uh, sort of, uh, slightly self-deprecating and that kind of thing. And I said, well, 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 hold on just a second. 
you have to you have to embrace all of who you are uh, from that point or from the time you came into this world to this point where you are right now because you are who you are because of those experiences. And so to judge them as good or bad or embarrassing or whatever, no, you just they just are what they are. And that's kind of what you're saying about these soul experiences. They're, they're, they're neither good nor bad. They're just experiences. Yes, and, everything. And what have we learned from those experiences to me? That's the big thing. Yes, yes, that's what I was going to say. You know, um, I do spiritual counseling and I and I work with different groups and presentations and stuff. And one of the things I tell people is on the other side, there is no judgment. There is no blame. Even when the worst things that could possibly happen on this earth happen on the other side, it's all about embracing that experience and learning from it. What are... What are the lessons that you learned? What are the teachings? And here I tell people, you know, that was a crappy thing that happened to you. And it, it's really bad. But what did you learn from that? Did it make you stronger? Did it make you more compassionate? Did it open you up to be mm -hmm. able to see two different points of views? And so I think that as humans, we get caught up in the good, the bad, the judgment. I need to do this. I need to do that. When in fact, all we need to do is just to be and to experience. And I also believe that more and more people are having phenomenal soul experiences like the soul infusions due to the fact that more and more people are opening up. They're calling in and requesting more of their higher self essence to come into their beings to help them work to guide them etc and i do see that a lot of people who think they've had a soul exchange experience are actually having soul infusions and a lot of that as i said is because they're asking for it but a lot of it also has to do with the place that our planet is in this universe and the fact that we're constantly being bombarded with a whole host of energy from the photon belts and i believe that we as human beings are actually raising our vibratory frequency as gaia is raising her maybe even to be able to hold more light in our cells and so whether or not people are having these types of soul experiences i believe a lot of people are having experiences where their vibratory rate is being elevated. More and more people are willing now to say, this is not acceptable, that is not acceptable. Whereas 10 years ago, it may have just been, ah, you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah. I think more and more people are awakening. And as more light is shown onto this planet, then we see more and more of the negative aspects. But think, I think all of this is coming up for healing. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this has a lot to do with or that maybe this is an outgrowth of what we are calling in the material world today the polarization uh, religiously, politically, economically, and, and whatever other category you want to list? Do you think that, that, that this is – that the polarization is actually – a good thing in that it is bringing out some of this stuff about what is and isn't 
um, appropriate for us as human beings to be exhibiting because it's not benefiting us. It's not serving us. It's not helping us to move forward as a species. Because I don't know about you. I've only been here 60 years, but 61 in June. Uh, and my own personal observation of where we are today is little, hardly any movement and maybe even steps backwards 60 plus years ago. I don't see that we have really made that much progress as a species, not technology, not all of the wonderful innovations and inventions and, and discoveries, but just as individuals, we're still playing the same silly, stupid games that we've been playing, well, literally for centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people are still playing those games, but a lot of people are also stepping back from that. And what I am seeing personally is that there is more and more people who are awakening spiritually and who are saying this is not acceptable. And because that we're talking about the unacceptable more, it's easy to say that nothing has changed. Yes, those still those petty games are going on. We have cycles of things that will come and that will go. But the reality of it is, overall, I do believe that humanity is waking up and that humanity is rising to a higher level of consciousness. Well, I want to continue to believe that that is the truth, that that is really what's happening. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you sit here and you look at you look mm -hmm. at what's happening. And a lot of people, they, they've kind of given up. They say, oh, there's no hope. Well, but the one thing that I think we all seem to forget from time to time is the fact that everything in this world is temporary. Yes. Nothing is permanent. The only th there is only one thing. One thing that is actually permanent, and I'm not going to say change. Change is the one constant in the universe. That's true. But see, that's the whole point. That is. But what is permanent, what is eternal, what is immortal, is us. Exactly. We are souls having the human experience. We're not humans that have a soul. I always joke with my students, and I tell them, you know, this is nothing more than a meat suit. Mm -hmm. You're going to, it feels like we're here forever, but it's literally a blink of the eye because we'll be back on the other side. We'll be laughing about all the stuff that we thought was so horrific over here. Things are so temporary, everything. And even, you know, when you start looking at physicists, you start looking at quantum science, everything is showing more and more of the fact that, you know, Maybe this is a holographic planet that we live on. Maybe nothing is real. Yes, there's density. So when I knock on my desk, you're going to hear a sound mm -hmm. and I can feel that. I can feel the seat beneath me, but that's because there's denseness to this energy. There's denseness to this holograph. And so, you know, honestly, it's kind of just like Shakespeare said that, you know, we're all here on a play. Mm -hmm. You know, we're having this big play and yeah. we're just switching out our characters. And I think that's exactly what we're doing, yeah. because I believe that all of the information that we gather goes back to our souls. But I believe it also goes back to source energy or to God and that we're all helping to raise 
and to create, to co-create with this source energy. Sheila Seppi is my guest. This is Tell Me Your Story. We're talking about walk-ins and the cosmology of the soul. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for staying with us here on the program. This is fascinating because I heard about walk-ins decades ago, but I also heard, and this is where the, the controversy comes in, I also heard from others who acknowledge the the concept, but they say no, because it's the equivalent, this is their perspective, it's the equivalent of, you might call it soul suicide. Now, the soul doesn't die. I mean, it's immortal. You can't kill the soul. But they're saying that that it's, you know, they might as well be, might as well be committing uh, material, physical, human suicide. Um, because, you know, that, you know, it's like now you have unfinished business, but the concept or the, the, the aspect that you have introduced is, Hey, all this was set up long before these souls ever came in. Are you familiar with LBL life between lives? Uh, Yes, I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have a practitioner here in Santa Barbara, uh, who took me through the, uh, uh, conscious, uh, totally aware hypnosis of this yeah. process. A lot of people, they, they don't think that hypnosis or even uh, psychology or what have you are very valid because a lot of times the therapist or the practitioner is, is actually leading them to the answers. Uh, this gentleman did not. Uh, he said, he was basically asking me, what do you see? What do you hear? What are, what are you experiencing? Okay. And I am then supposed to tell him what I'm seeing, hearing, or experiencing. And it was quite fascinating. Um, and I've shared this many times on the program about my last life, which is he took me back there in the pioneer days. Uh, and um, it was interesting. Had a farm. Farm caught fire. The barn burned down. I had a cabin up in the mountains, so I went up to the mountains. And uh, one day I just walked out the door, sat down on the chair, and I always go into this accent. I sat down on the chair, put my feet up on the rail, pipped my hat back, and... It's a good life. And I left. I just left. Now, whether I knew how or it was an intuitive knowing that how to leave, but that's just what I did. And I find that interesting that we don't know how to do that. I mean, there are people who have had near-death experiences, which from my perspective, when you have a near-death experience, it is not something that you're doing consciously. But I also know of people who induce out-of-body experiences. I know of a gentleman we've had on the program. It's probably been 10 or 12 years since he's been on the program. Born-again, Bible-believing, evangelical Christian who practices the out-of-body experience. He just enjoys doing it. I remember asking him, I said, where in the Bible does it say you can do that? He says, nowhere. And I was actually enthralled and very excited about the fact that he was doing this. He was doing something that wasn't inside the box, you know. But Jesus also said in the Bible to all the people observing him, 
why marvel you at these things, these things I do, you can do and more. And more. And so, and yeah. more. Yeah. We do have that innate power within us. We don't have, we have to differentiate the soul from the body. Our body is nothing more than the vehicle for this life experience. Mm-hmm. No different than my car. When I need to go to the grocery store, I get in the car, I go to the grocery store, I do what I need and I come home. Right. That's what our body is. Yeah. We come into the body we go do what we need to do we come back and we leave so our soul always knows when it's time to leave and has that ability to do so it's the mind that can't conceive of it mm-hmm. but we are not our minds right we are not our bodies yeah. you know and you raise an interesting uh, aspect to this that there's a, a wonderful line in an Irish song call, uh, that says, you, you do not own the land, the land owns you. And based upon everything that you have just described of walk-ins and the various types, it says to me that we don't own this, we're, we are leasing this body. This body does not belong to us. And it's not that it belongs to somebody else, it just doesn't belong to us. It's just a vehicle. And that if I have a contract that says at the age of 65 or 70, uh, I, the essence of Richard right now, is to leave to make room for whoever, whatever, to come in and take over and continue this life, then that's what's going to happen. And then I will return to the one, as it were, and... Maybe go through that period of rest and uh, reconnecting with the other souls I've connected with before, having a few classes, you know, uh, and um, and then making the decision and filling out a new contract and coming back again to continue to learn. But also, hopefully, I'd like to think that if we are if we are truly learning if we are truly growing in the each of the lifetimes that we're in then we are coming back to help humanity to move forward and and it may not ever be seen on the local news or in the social media or any place else like that and maybe that's kind of the point in that uh you know, it's it's like um, even from the Bible talks about, you know, giving alms and doing uh-huh. it secretly. And in a manner of speaking, this helping of humanity is for the most part, it's done in secret. Not that you're trying to hide, but you're not looking for notoriety. Uh-huh. A, a couple of things I want to hit on. Um, there are what's called choice points. We okay. all have choice points. Yeah, Greg Braden talks and, about those. Yeah. Yes. And also, um, I am a level two um, quantum healing hypnosis practitioner uh, trained through Doris Cannon's work. And people talk about those also in hypnotherapy sessions where when the soul comes in, there are exit strategies put into place that maybe at age seven, age 14, age 22, age 50, whatever, that there would be an opportunity that the soul could leave at those times. And so those are put into place before we ever incarnate. Now, in my situation, I firmly believe that 
my soul stayed in this body until I was able to give birth to my children. And then it was okay for that for that soul to leave. I do believe that that was one of the reasons because I really had to train and to raise my children, the children that I have, my children, I had to raise them before I could ever go out and do anything else. So I think that that was something that I said, hey, that's great. I'll raise these kids. Now, the interesting thing too is my son is a walk-in. And I have never heard of a family where there's two walk-ins. At the age of seven, his appendix ruptured. And that's when the swine flu was going around. It was really bad. He had all the symptoms of swine flu. He was asymptomatic for appendicitis because his appendix had actually grown back into his intestinal wall. And when it ruptured, it was being cushioned. So by the time he was actually diagnosed, he already had peritonitis. Oh, So when the doctor laid him down in the bed and he walked out of the room, they were, we were already at the hospital. I heard his soul cry out to be released. Now this is a seven year old child. Hmm. And my husband was standing there with me and he began to speak in a man's voice in the most beautiful dialect that I have ever heard. I did not know what the words meant, but I knew the resonance of them. And I knew he was crying out to be released. Totally. He had been diagnosed with ADHD. He was on medications after this surgery, totally went off all the medications. He was asymptomatic. He no longer had asthma. His body was healed. He did not They had to basically power wash his intestines and some of the organs, they said two or three times. And it was it was a pretty grim situation. He did not even get a secondary infection. And of course, now he's also in the book. His name is Dylan Cusco. And he remembers he is a soul infusion. At that time, he brought in more of his angelic essence. And he can tell you stories and he remembers things from the other side. He remembers wars of angels. He remembers a lot of the stories that they talk about even in the Bible. And he goes, well, yeah, mom, but it's this way, da 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 you know. And so he's, he told me all these stories as a child growing up. He's very gifted, very talented. And he actually works with me in our business. We have together Spirit Way Wellness and we, we do body, mind, spirit healing. But he's, he's very gifted, and he does remember a lot of these. And it was like, yeah, he said, um, this, is, this is when I decided that it was time for me to go. And he only, his soul only needed to experience what it had experienced up until age seven. That's it. That's all he needed was up to age seven. I became a walk-in when he was three years old, and he remembers me being very sick. He remembers me being on the couch all the time and everything that went on with me prior to that time. And so we had a bonding situation. But after his surgery, he came in at seven. I think I said three, but that's when I became a walk-in for Mm -hmm. him. But um, at age seven, yeah, that's when he came in as the walk-in. And and it's very unique to hear it from someone else's perspective and to hear about this grand plan of how everything fits together and how, you know, 
this planet is a very hard planet to come to because it's a planet of duality. It's very difficult when you come from a place of pure love and pure, um, just it's bliss. And mm -hmm. then you're shocked into a body, whereas, and I was shocked into the body of a dysfunctional marriage and had to go through a divorce. And I mean, you know, and still to this day, I'm like, who does this kind of stuff? Who thinks this way? What is wrong with people? I want to go home. No, take that back. I love it here. But I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. I can't, I just cannot wrap my brain around it. Yeah. I just can't because we forget that we are divine essence. We are not human, yeah. but we think we're human. And that's part of this great game mm -hmm. that we have going on here. It's part of that duality. And it's part about waking up and remembering exactly who we are and where we fit on this planet mm. and in the overall scheme of yeah. things. It's just like, stop the world. I want to get off. That's right. You well, and while you're back. <laughs> and while you're on the ride, keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times until the earth comes to a full and complete stop. We're talking That's with right. Sheila Seppi and we're talking about walk-ins, the cosmology of a soul, uh, the uh, the cosmology of a soul and it's fascinating. I was looking at your website and there are two things I wanted to ask you about. One of them has to do with this one image here and you apparently make the differentiation under the wellness category. You make the differentiation between the spirit and the soul. Is that correct? Yes. What's the I difference? Because I've heard it used interchangeably. Yes. And a lot of people do. And it is just semantics. However, for me, the soul is what attaches to this physical vehicle. And when that soul leaves, this vehicle is no longer. Okay, so that is what actually animates and gives life okay. to this being. And it is the personality of this lifetime. The spirit is what is enlivening everything. The spirit is more attached to that higher self. The spirit kind of is moving in, moving to, moving through. It's working all around us. So spirit is also a life-giving force. Without the spirit, the body can still be animated. When your friend talks about um, doing astral travel and when people astral travel, when they shamanically journey, when they do remote viewing, all of these types of things, they're actually using part of their spiritual essence, part of that soul essence as well, to travel into these other realms, into the astral realm around this planet. And so that's that's the difference. The other thing I tell people is like just imagine a the ocean being great spirit or being source, the once, whatever, God. Mm -hmm. So the ocean is God. And you just take, say, like this pitcher of water mm -hmm. and you dip it down in. Now, this is only a vessel. Right. But this water is still source energy. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to take another cup, which I don't have. That's right. But then I pour some of this water into the cup. The action of that pouring that what, you know, the the movement of the water going into the cup, that's all the spirit. And then it's also when it gets into the cup, that's the soul. And the cup then is the vessel. The physical okay. vessel. And so it's all one in the same. 
that yeah. water is still the exact same as it was when it left the ocean. Mm-hmm. And this soul is the exact same as yeah. it was when it left all that is, or God, or source. Right. And you talk about uh, this world of duality. We get thrown into this one, and boom, it's a heck of a shock. But one of the things yeah. that I have discovered is uh, that, that, and I, th- I honestly believe it is a matter of perspective, this mm-hmm. is not a world of duality. This is a world of it is what it is. It's like when we look out into the cosmos and we see all this stuff moving around and the supernovas exploding and all of these different things. That's not duality. That just is what it, the universe is just doing what it does. And the cells of our body are the same way. They're just doing what they're doing. It's not either good nor bad. It just is what it is. So if we are able to, and I know that this is part of the teaching, for example, within uh, the, the, uh, the practices that I have been aware of and, and become a part of uh, from Paramahansa Yogananda and his book, which has been my metaphysical primer since I was 17, um, that we are, are to sort of come to a place where we understand that, again, it's, it just is what it is. It is our minds and our ego personalities that make the judgments as to whether or not it's good or bad, right or wrong. And, uh, you know, it's, it's again, I, I will always take it back to the cosmos. So you're going to tell me, which is it? Label it. That supernova just exploded. Is that good or is that bad? And then, of course, there's also that wonderful story. You may be very familiar with it about the, and I think this it's, the origins were uh, Chinese of this uh, farmer and his son. And uh, his son uh, is, you know, uh, comes to him and says, Dad, uh, you know, one of the horses just got away and uh, and so forth. And uh, and of course, the son goes after it and and brings back not just that horse, but a bunch of others. Well, in the course of the days that transpire over these events, these various events, the neighbor comes over to ask, hey, how are things going, you know? Well, the, uh, the horse ran off and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. Oh, that's bad. And the, fa- the farmer says, well, who's to say whether it's good or bad? And then, of course, the next day, the son has come back with the horse and a, a herd of, of other horses. And, of course, the same conversation, the neighbor with the farmer, oh, well, that's good. Well, who's to say? And they go back and forth with all of these different events that took place. And the farmer has that perspective of who's to say whether it's good or bad. Because you don't know what the next day is going to bring and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And 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 so I used to struggle with this, this aspect. And have you shared that from the ancient wisdom teachings, you know, it talks about how we came from the one. We're going back to the one. And why in the heck did we choose to come to this place where there's duality? But when you start re-examining, there is no duality. This is all still part of the one. It really right. is. The duality is the human vessel versus the human spirit. Yeah. Because we have a veil of forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. that we choose when we enter this body so that we don't remember. It's kind of like a game. We're playing hide and seek with ourselves. 
You know, how how long does it take us to remember who we are, to find ourselves? You know, we're hiding in this human vessel. We're pretending that we're human. We think we're human. And as human, we do have judgments. Things are good. Things are bad. We have viewpoints. Mm -hmm. You know, the same situation can happen to 10 different people. 10 different people are going to have 10 different viewpoints, you know? And so everything is about perspective, but the duality is learning to embrace and to drop into that essence of who we are Mm -hmm. and not allow that mind to, you know, they call it the monkey mind, the monkey mind, not to to let that monkey mind take control, not to, to lay in bed at night and not be able to go to sleep and, and be worried about, you know, I've got this on my to-do list and I got this to do and that to do. And, uh, you know, not be concerned about those things because really when you boil it down, none of those things really matter anyway. Yeah. We're just occupying time, having an experience. Yeah. And the way we view those experiences are going to vary from person to person. So I do agree that there is no universal duality, but the duality is what occurs within this human vessel. And also uh, the concept of time. That's a human construct. It doesn't exist Absolutely. out in the universe. No. You know? Uh, I I um, I actually had to chuckle a little bit when you were referring to uh, you were referring to uh, spirit, and it made me think of um, and this day comes around every year, uh, and it's really funny because uh, people will quote it in emails. I got a bunch of them on that date as well. May the fourth be with you, you know, and a Star Wars uh, a thing. But the force that is spirit. It permeates everything. You can call it the force. You can call it spirit. You can call it divine energy. Uh, everything is energy. We are energy. Our souls are energy. Uh, and and even the body is energy. It will not retain the form that it has today, even tomorrow for that matter. But in the in the infinity of eternity, it will take on some other form somewhere down the road. It may be part of a planet or a star. It may be part of, it may be something else and so on and so on and so on. We just, we just don't know. And, and in one sense, I guess it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because this is, this is the way things are. In terms of the, the understanding, uh, Sheila, Sheila Sepp, by the way, is my guest, uh, walk-ins, the cosmology of, a, of the soul is the uh, subtitle. And I wanted to ask you about the concept. I refer to it as transitioning. The other terms are death and dying. And there are people who have a great deal of fear yes. because they fear either from the philosophy they were raised in. I was born and raised Roman Catholic. I don't have that fear uh, anymore of death or dying. I actually look forward to it, though I'm not going to push it. I, I have another 40, 39, 40 plus years to go because I have to live right. My great grandmother on my mother's side who lived to be 100. And I was telling everybody I was going to outlive the woman. And this was at, at her age of 95. And I would say, and she's making it really hard. Not that I wanted her to go. It was just, I'm going to outlive this woman. But I don't know how long that's going to be because she's still here. Now, she passed away at 100. Anyway, the concept of uh, the fear, I should say, uh, which is a concept that either A, there is nothing to which I try to calm them by saying, 
Well, if there's nothing, you're not going to know. But I just want you, okay, you're not going to know. But let me just say, from my logical brain that was God-given, as as it were, okay, uh, as it says in the uh, in the Old Testament, let's sit down and reason together. Well, how do you do that? You do it with your brain. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever that we are going through all of these gyrations, all of these experiences, all of this time and, and energy spent for there to be nothing. It just doesn't make any sense. And if it were, if it were even possible to prove that there is nothing after this life, then this interview is over and I'm going out to rape, pillage, and plunder because my life has no meaning because this is all an accident. I don't believe that. It doesn't make any sense. And so uh, I continue the interview. <laughs> I'm not leaving. Uh, doing what I'm doing uh, and so forth. And again, sharing that uh, there is, I want to say an afterlife, but it's more a continuation of life, but not as we know it. It's something different. Or uh, actually, that's incorrect. Not as we know it. Not as we remember it. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Yes. Great. So talk to us a little bit about how you help people who have that kind of concern, whether they be someone who might be quote, uh, termed terminal. They've been told, you only have three days, six months, five years to live. And quite, oh, excuse me, quite honestly, all of us are terminal. Okay, <laughs> as far as the physical body is concerned. My father told me, eat, drink, and be merry in moderation because no one gets out of this world alive. Talk to us about this. Well, I can say from my own memories that the death process, which I call dropping its robe, because since I found my first spiritual teacher, she is of Hopi lineage, and I have been an apprentice to her now for nearly 21 years. My understanding, my memory is, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's so quick. And typically, I laugh and say, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Oh, my gosh. You know, but yet we do it again and again. However, the process itself, honestly, the soul does not feel any pain, period. The soul does not. This is all mind stuff with this physical vehicle, mm -hmm. okay? When the soul leaves the body, the body expires, Unless that soul has some type of a need to experience pain, it will step out before that process because it's over. It's done. People who are in, I had a lady whose daughter was in an automobile accident that, and the car caught on fire and the daughter burned up. Mm. And I, you know, she was just like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine what her last thoughts were, this, that, and the other. And she very much believed in a soul. And so I told her, I said, the real part that your daughter was already out of that vehicle when all of that took place. Your daughter is already in world of spirit. Your daughter could stay and observe. What I find is with people, when I take them through quantum healing hypnosis technique, that most everyone 
always steps out before the death experience itself. And they're there looking at the body. They're observing it. Some people are still feeling some kind of an attachment and they want to stay with the body until after the the funeral or after a certain period of time. With the teachings that I have, we do what is called a release ceremony after 21 days and bless the soul and send it on its way because we believe that the soul stays around, says it's goodbye. We do, um, we give away possessions. We do all these kinds of things just to kind of help to disperse that energy so that there is nothing to hold that soul back here on this planet. But the actual process itself, I you know, it's always joyous. Mm-hmm. It's always like, oh, my God. Like I said, what was I thinking? Yeah. I feel so free. I feel so light. I feel like I am me. Yeah. Because I do remember when I came into this body very firmly. And I remember the 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 constriction. And it is a lot harder to be born than it is to leave. It's a lot harder to fit into the meat suit than to shed it, okay? And so it honestly is a joyous time. And those memories that made that person, that person will go on with them. So it's not like they're going to be forgetting anything. Everything is retained by that oversoul. All of those memories go to the oversoul and they become that overall collective aspect of who we are when we come in again and we bring in certain little aspects with us. But it is a very joyous time. But it's, you know, I'll look forward to that more than I did coming in (laughs) because, you know, and something else I do want to mention to people, you know, the soul will visit an, an infant's body many, many times before it actually will firmly attach. Now, I, yes, my memories and what I, what I remember and what I have observed is the soul will come in and out of the body because what it's doing is imprinting on the cellular structure of the body. Just like the physical form has a neurological system with the central nervous system and the spinal cords and all the nerves going out, there is also a spiritual system that's put in place. Your chakras, your meridians, and the cellular structure that is able to hold that form okay this the soul form is what mm-hmm. i'm talking about mm-hmm. so it has to come in and it imprints and it lays down that structure over a period of time and the soul can come and go at will it leaves and it comes back but once that baby takes the first breath then that tethering occurs what we call that silver cord and it attaches that soul now the soul can still leave and come back and visit It always leaves enough animation because of that silver cord that's attached that it can be off learning. It can be off obtaining resources that it's going to need. It can be doing a whole host of things. It can be off healing people. I can't tell you the number of clients that come in and when they see me, they're like, you were in my dreams. 
you've already been healing me. I thought, you know, and it's, it's just amazing. And people will tell me all the time, I dreamed that you came to my house and this, that, and the other. And no doubt that is when the soul leaves at night, but the infant does the same thing. Mm. But once it becomes two or three, you know, years old, it, it stays in the body a lot more and then it only leaves, you know, at nighttime, Mm -hmm. but we all come back and forth and we all some people retain a hundred percent of the memories when they leave the body at night and come back. But just imagine if we all remembered everything that we actually did, if we remembered all of our past lives, we wouldn't even want to be here because everything is so much more beautiful out there. So when the soul detaches and that silver cord releases at the moment of what we call physical death, It's a beautiful thing for that soul. And it's not like it's going to a scary place because it's there all the time anyway. It's just being reunited with more of itself. Very fascinating stuff. And I I am uh, always intrigued by these conversations because it uh, it is that experience, especially the gentleman I mentioned earlier who experiences these out of body who induces these out-of-body experiences, um, when someone passes or, or uh, leaves, if you will, uh, my first thought has to do with, I wonder what they're experiencing right now. What are they doing? You know, what are they seeing? What are they, uh, who, who are they talking with or communicating with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, I have been given uh, a lot of information in that regard over the years, especially when it came to uh, the Life Between Lives session that I had and the books I've read of Dr. Newton's uh, of the different sessions and experiences that other people have had, all independent of one another. It's one of the things that I've always found fascinating is that none of these people, as far as I know, according to the information, none of these people knew each other, uh, did not have any idea about this stuff, and and yet here they were. They were experiencing uh, these these different things that were all that all had similarities, similar to people who have these near death experiences, share very common experiences, and yet there are certain segments of our society, science in particular, that say, no, that was just the, uh, the breaking down of the uh, uh, neural net, the, the synapses in the brain, and that's what's causing the firing of these uh, memories that they don't recall they've got, but boom, that's what those are. And it's like, but, you know, how would you have a memory of a light at the end of a tunnel if you've never been in a tunnel and a light was coming toward you, that kind of thing. It's like you, you, it's, it's, and there is also that sort of paradox about emotion too. You know, they talk about uh, having emotion and, and experiencing uh, the different anger and fear and so forth. And uh, someone said something along the lines of uh, that you, you can't uh, have an, you can't have an experience of a particular of emotion unless you've had it before because you have no points of reference. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense because there has to be a first time. There has to be a first time. It's like the, the chicken and the egg or, you know, <laughs> how did the universe begin and what created the Big Bang? You know, and those kinds of ponderings, if you will. 
But all setting right. all that aside, Sheila uh, Seppi is my guest. We're talking about walk-ins. We're talking about the cosmology of the soul. And I have to say, I'm glad that you you uh, um, differentiated and explained a little bit about the difference between the soul and the spirit. I want to move on to another area that's on your website. That another one of those because you also deal you're you're a shaman you also deal with spirituality life purpose uh, as well as multiple dimensions multidimensional us or you if you will but the one area I want to talk about and this is coming from my Catholic heritage if you will and that is ceremony mm-hmm. and I've asked this question on uh, many occasions in regards to us as human beings and the <laughs> the dualistic aspect of male female and of course the the uh, the the milestones that we experience as males or females and females I should say um, you know when do you become an adult uh, all right and and there are many different people who will give you different answers uh, some might even say, even though you're only uh, 16 or 18, you know, the first time you get to vote or drive or drink or your first sexual experience or you reach a certain age. And there are other cultures where you when you do reach a certain age, there's a ceremony. And obviously in the Jewish tradition, there's the uh, bar mitzvah for the for the boys. And it's, I think it's bat mitzvah for the girls. Uh, but in those societies, uh, in days gone by, they treated them like men and women after the ceremony. But in our society in the West, you're 13. You're still a teenager. You're not a man. You're not a woman. Um, talk to us not just not so much specifically about that, but about the importance of ceremony and incorporating ceremony into our lives and the significance thereof okay um a couple things first when i first became acquainted with ceremony it was because of my spiritual teacher and when i went to see her i was literally a mess i was all over the board as i said i thought i was having a nervous breakdown i thought i might be psychotic i didn't know what was going on i just i was hearing seeing knowing all these kinds of things i was overstimulated and she, in addition to providing regular counseling, also invited me to, to participate in what's called women's circles. Now, in the Hopi tradition, the women would get together and they would share information together. And that's kind of what she was doing with the white eyes, which is what we were considered. So we were learning how to... Um, basically use these indigenous wisdoms as a way to become better people. And part of that was ceremony, not just seasonal ceremonies where we're celebrating or a birthday ceremony where you're celebrating the birth of, but ceremonies that were of a personal nature. Ceremonies that would help us, just like you said, to have a rite of passage, but ceremonies that also bring us to a place of centeredness in our being. One of the things I think that really helped to anchor me onto this planet was learning how to do shamanic travel to the upper world, to the lower worlds, to work with the guides, etc. The other thing was ceremony, because within ceremony, it brought a mindfulness about how precious 
every single day and every single moment was. You can have a ceremony to greet the sun where you are in your gratitude for your life. Some people call that prayer, whatever. Some people will light a candle when they go to do prayers. Other people might light six candles. They may light four for each of the directions, one for above, one from below. They may light a seventh one for the spirit within. Whatever people do, it is a way of recognizing that something different, something unique is about to occur. And it's actually your ability to put your energy into a co-creative act that will benefit you. So let's say if you want to do, some people have a ceremony like when they name their child. And that is a time of recognition of that baby. It's celebrating the energy that the parents are bringing together in the verbalization of a frequency that's going to represent their child. So there's a ceremony with that. There can be ceremony of helping a woman, a birthing way ceremony, where she is getting ready to prepare for the birth of a child. But in ceremony, a lot of times I teach people how to conduct personal ceremonies and certain items that they need. Now, I personally like to work with sacred herbs. Do the herbs have magical powers? No. Do essential oils have magical powers? No. But what they both do is work with the olfactory bulb that then sends certain signals to the brain that will evoke certain responses. They can be emotional responses. They can be spiritual responses. And so if we are burning sage... There are many studies that already show that because of the high ionic, negative ionic properties of sage, that it's able to help clear off energies that's around us that we would find with cell phones, with computers, with lights, because they all produce positive energies. So the very act of a smudging ceremony could be lighting sage, taking it all through our body, which then is going to bring us to a place of centeredness, just like the positive ions of the ocean. When you walk along the ocean are washed away by the negative ions that come in through the waves, mm. just like when you walk in a forest, all the po positive ions are dissipated because the body's inundated with negative ions. The same thing happens when you light sage. All of those positive ions are dissipated. The body comes back into more of a parasympathetic state because in our society, we have so many stimuli and we still stay in that fight or flight. Some people's amygdala and the brain are so stimulated that they're constantly in that state of fight or flight or the um, adrenal system is in such a state that the entire endocrine system, the hormone system of the body is thrown out of balance because of that fight or flight response and all of that adrenaline still flooding through our bodies when in fact it's the way that we're choosing to respond to ex, you know, to stress in our lives. But just by burning sage, 
can actually calm all of those things. The amygdala in the brain can begin to calm down. And so I teach people how to use a variety of herbs and the properties that they have, as well as how they can burn certain uh, resins, which also, you know, like frankincense is a resin as well. And so what the different properties are in a personal ceremony that helps them to balance themselves. We also will learn about different ceremonies that they can practice with their family. You know, you can have a personal counsel. You know, when there's disputes going on in the family, like my kids growing up, we would have, you know, family meeting once a week where everybody got to go around the table. We used a talking stick, but we also used sage and we would bring in that ceremony of sacredness. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens anytime we do any kind of ceremony, whether it's a rite of passage, whether it's a celebratory ceremony, we are celebrating and allowing ourselves to participate in something that is outside of ourselves. Our minds begin to slow down and we drop into a state of mindfulness. So I think ceremony is very, very important. And it also provides a ritual. I think as humans, we like, you know, we have a ritual. We get up in the morning, we wash our face, we brush our teeth. We have a ritual, we hop in the shower. We have a ritual, we go down, turn on the coffee pot or make our tea or we fix breakfast. You know, we're very habit um forming creatures, actually. And so ritual is something that we're very comfortable with. And if we use ritual with ceremony, then it becomes a big part of our lives. And we get out of all the stress. You know, what would happen every day if people would light a candle, sit down, smudge themselves, go to a mindfulness place inside their center, instead of running to the coffee pot and turning on the news? You know, I guarantee their adrenals, their adrenaline would start to subside. The adrenal system would start to heal. That amygdala mm-hmm. would start to relax and people would be more at peace. So ceremony is huge. Yeah. And I, I picked that up, of course, from my uh, Catholic upbringing, this ritual, the tradition, the ceremony, that kind of thing. And there are times when we don't even realize that we have a ceremony, that we do have that that ritual uh, within us. So we, what you just described, but also, you know, the holidays will bring out specific, hey, this is what we do every year. How, how can you change that? That kind of thing. But even with ceremonies and rituals, do you think that it is uh, a good thing to uh, maybe help them along sort of, I guess the best word I can think of is to help them to sort of evolve in spite of the fact that I have a copy of the Byzantine Catholic liturgy that was um, uh, practiced <clears throat> in uh, the in in uh, uh, the Byzantine Church back in Phoenix, where I was, where when I was married to my first wife, she was of the Byzantine faith of Catholicism, and that service, with the exception of say the this homily or the sermon, uh, was the same. Year after year, depending upon, you know, the church calendar kind of thing. Uh, and, and there was and, and so that liturgy is. Is kind of, in a matter of speaking, set in stone. But what about the evolution of ritual and ceremony? Well, 
I think that everybody has to sort of pick and choose what feels right for them, number one. But when we start looking at ritual and ceremony, it has been around basically since the dawn of man. So apparently it is something inherent within us that we are seeking or that we are choosing to participate in. But regardless of the type of ceremony, I think it's all about intention. Whether a ceremony is set in stone and you do A, B, C, D, that works great for people who need that kind of structure. Maybe some people don't need that type of structure and they can create for themselves an offshoot or an evolution of a certain type of a ritual. I think it all has to do with the intention in which something is done because you can have a ceremony that's set in stone that people just get so comfortable with that they're just going through the motions and they could be thinking, I can't believe that person in front of me is being so slow. I cannot believe this. They get in front of me every single time. Oh my God, I'm going to go crazy. What are they doing? Would you hurry up? If you're bringing that kind of intention into a ceremony, You've lost it. Yeah. You know, and so that's why when I talk to people, anything that they want to do that is that feeds their souls, I encourage them to do. But they also have to be very, very careful of the intention and try to do something that's just for them. So even if you do group ceremony, try to have something that's just for you because you're taking time for yourself and you're also honoring yourself. Mm. I had an experience last night um, with my wife and her greenhouse. This is a, a, a structure we built in, the, in our backyard, and um, she's been wanting it for a long, long time, was in tears the day it was completed. Uh, she was so happy. She was, she was so joyous uh, that she was crying. She, she, as a matter of fact, I was a little concerned. She could see the look on my face. No, these are happy tears. These are happy tears. <laughs> anyway, so I go out in the backyard, and, of course, she had gone out to water the plants and to do some sage uh, smudging. And um, I only walked halfway, and it has one of those uh, double doors. You know, the top half swings loose from the bottom half. And she saw me there, and I asked her, I says, May I have permission to enter your sacred space? And she said, yes. Now, that was the first time I'd ever done that. But I have let her go out there by herself because I, that's kind of how I felt. I have my studio with the computer and the audio equipment, all that stuff, which she's certainly welcome to come into. It's not to that level, but she doesn't. And so I'm showing her that same kind of respect. And that's what I said. And she said, sure. And thank you for honoring that, she said. When we want to do ceremony is it uh how what is one of the best ways to go about preparing a sacred space for ceremony and i know that you know there there's there may be different places for different ceremonies but there are also for example we are going to construct a a circle uh, mm -hmm. out in the yard for this purpose and um, she's going to choose the space because she's very intuitive. And then we're going to build it. Um, and so I'm just curious as to what are some of the best first, second, and third steps, if you will, uh, for I want ceremony in my life, but I don't know where to do it. Uh, 
how do I begin? Okay. There's a couple of things. First, I believe that world of spirit is right here around us at all times. And so if we could see everything that was happening around us, our brains would not even be able to comprehend that. And so first thing I tell people is find a space that speaks to you. And by that, I mean, it gets your attention. You go back to it time and time again. It could be that it is a place outdoors. It could be a place that's inside your house. But find that space that speaks to you. The next thing that I always do is I ask the spirits of that place if I have their permission to conduct ceremony there. Mm-hmm. And people are like, well, how do you how do you know? Do they say, sure, go ahead? Or do they <laughs> knock things off the shelves when they say no? It's, you're going to know. Yeah. If you open up and you ask, you will get the answer. And you're going to know. And maybe the answer is, nah, this is not your space. This is our space. You, There's another space better for you. So you just keep looking till you find that. You ask, you receive, then you know. The next thing I always do is I smudge the area before I ever do anything. When we built the home that I'm in right now, I also constructed a medicine wheel and we placed crystals in the corners of the house to honor the land for just sitting the structure on top of it. Because we did ask the land if we could build the home here and it it was in agreement. And so we, you know, we moved it around till we felt that it was just perfect. And then before we ever laid the concrete, that's when we did our offerings. So smudge the place. If you don't like sage, if you have a reaction to it, give your breath because your breath is your most precious commodity. Offer that to the land or use tobacco. If you want to sprinkle tobacco around, bring it to your heart, put your gratitude in, raise it up, you know, think whatever, however you do that, be in your gratitude, think it, and then sprinkle it on the land. Then after you have, you found your land, you ask for permission, you have smudged that land, then go about creating your own space. Now for me, I have a ceremonial blanket. I also have items that I only use during ceremony. If I have crystals that I use in a particular ceremony, I don't use them for anything else. Hmm. So find items and objects that you want to use to create the ceremony. Maybe it's particular furniture. So if you've got a chair that you're going to sit in every time you're doing ceremony, you don't want it to be from the kitchen that you haul back and forth into the kitchen. It needs to be something that's dedicated to that space and then begin creating your space. And then after it's created, I always smudge it again. And I'm in gratitude because you want to make sure all the items and all the objects that come in don't have any other energies that's attached to them. Right. And I have to, uh, this may sound a little strange to some folks, but I have to say, as you were sharing all of that, I was smelling, I could smell the smudge. I could smell the sage, especially from, a matter of fact, last night, um, the door, the back door to the house was closed. And yet the wind was blowing in just such the right direction. I could smell the sage coming into the house from the greenhouse where she was uh, smudging. And it is, to, to me, it is a very familiar uh, uh, aroma. 
and uh, it it does evoke some very wonderful memories of ceremonies of the past. It's just it's wonderful. Uh, Sheila Seppi is my guest. We're talking about walk-ins, uh, the cosmology of the soul, and we want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, this has just been extraordinary, and I know that there's a lot more to talk about. I've I, I would love to have you back to talk more uh, about shamanism and your shamanic journey uh, in that regard, as well as your connection to Native American rituals and, and ceremonies and um, uh, uh, how you uh, were drawn to your mentor in that regard, uh, your spiritual teacher. I think that would be a, a very interesting program. You touched upon it a little bit in this one. But those are some of the things that we could talk about on another program. I do have uh, three other questions, uh, final questions that I want to ask you, which you may have addressed during the program, but I like to ask them pointedly. Before I do, though, I want to let our listeners and viewers know that this program is heard on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com, as well as our special Wednesday 9 a.m. broadcast here on this station. We are also podcasting these programs on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations that you folks are posting and reposting our interviews to, and I thank you for doing that. And if this program resonates with you and it serves you and you'd like to help us out financially, we would gratefully accept any amount. That's why we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And then please participate in the uh, decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, where you will spend time going within. Something else that we can talk about as well is trusting our intuition and how to foster that trust in that inner voice, that still small voice, but also looking for and finding that calm, peaceful, quiet space where we can rejuvenate and re-energize and recharge and do all of those things that will get us ready for when we come out of that state and we're ready to face our lives and our day and our purpose. So please uh, join us in uh, the decade of perfect vision. So as we uh, conclude this particular edition of Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, the first of three questions that I have for you. Number one, who is Sheila Seppi? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> no, actually, um, you know, I'm a spirit having a human experience. And while I'm here doing that, I provide healing work. People can find out about that on spiritwaywellness.com. That's the healing website. Or they can learn more about me and the other things that I do to occupy my time <laughs> at sheilaseppi.com. But, you know, when people ask me who I am, it's like, it's not, oh, I'm a walk-in, you know, that happens to be how my soul got here. But I am, I am a soul having a human experience and I'm loving every minute of it. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Yeah, part of the mission. And when I came in, I did have a very firm mission and that is to be a way shower to let people know that we are spirits in a body, having a human experience and helping people to prepare for the shift that I believe, the shift in consciousness that I believe and have seen that is already underway. And so that is a long story in and of itself. 
But I also am doing that through pulling people together. I have a new organization that I started called the Wish Alliance, and it has its own website at wishalliance.org. And people can go and they can find any type of a healer that they're possibly looking for. I'm trying to pull together all these wonderful and vast resources that are out there so people have a single point that they can go to to find whatever it is that they need to feed their soul. Because I do believe that we are on the cusp of Gaia making her transition to where we all will be moving into that fifth dimension. And I want to do everything humanly possible that I can to help people get ready for that. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Well, my life's purpose and my mission is all one and the same. I literally came in to this planet, into this body for this very reason. And I love my family dearly and they know they and they support the fact that I'm doing everything that I can to help wake people up. And my life's mission, my soul's mission, everything that I do on this planet, I, you know, I'm I'm always drop into humanness as we all do, but I try to always operate from that place of soul and to let people know and to let my light shine because I believe that as we are in the presence of other people that we can help to wake them up or to plant seeds just by being there. And so that's that's kind of what I'm here to do. I'm I'm a Johnny Appleseed of the soul. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's nice to meet you, Johnny. Uh, Sheila uh, Seppi, thank you, thank you so much for joining us on the program. This has been a delight. We will have you back to continue this conversation, and we hope people will uh, go to your website, SheilaSeppi.com. We will be linked to your website as well, and we hope that you will uh, check out the work that she is doing. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to love.